This is Dr. Sean Canone. Welcome to the podcast where for the next couple of episodes we'll be looking at end-of-life issues. Now as you know this is a very broad topic and we could go a lot of different directions but for today we'll just kind of paint a background picture for end-of-life issues specifically relating to care of patients in the long-term care post-acute care settings. One of the things that makes end-of-life discussions very interesting and very complex is that there are differences when it comes to socioeconomic or ethnic background. Back in 2000, there was a very interesting study published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. In this study, they posed a variety of questions or scenarios to those of different ethnic or demographic backgrounds. These were questions relating to who should care for dying individuals, where patients would like to die as far as their environment goes, whether they would like to seek nursing home or hospital or a hospice placement if they were dying, their belief in having advanced directives and preferences based on heroic measures taken at the end of life. And there were a variety of different responses given, and these responses did have relation to different ethnic backgrounds. So it's important for us as a take-home point to realize that every patient is unique when it comes to how they view end-of-life and the preferences that they would have in terms of advanced directives. When we think about the three major types of advanced directives, we're talking about the living will, the durable power of attorney for health care, and then do not resuscitate orders, which may come in the form of a MOLST or POLST physician's orders for life-sustaining treatments. As you know, the POLST form is very interesting and has much more detail than just a typical DNR form. It generally comes in several sections, labeled A through E. Section A addresses the patient's desires with regard to cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Section B talks about medical interventions and looks to understand whether the patient would want full treatment, selective treatment, or a comfort-focused treatment. Section C looks to address the patient's desires with relation to medically administered nutrition. Section D is a documentation of discussion. And then Section E are signatures for the attending practitioner. And it's important to note that the POLST form does require the signature of the patient or their legal representative, as well as a witness to this consent, and then finally the attending practitioner. It's also important to note that the POLST form is completely voluntary and that it can be changed at any time by the patient. Please note that whether you use a DNR form or the POLST, depending on the state in which you practice, it is recommended that these be reviewed periodically with the patient and especially when they have a change in healthcare setting or a change in healthcare status. The healthcare power of attorney lets someone else make healthcare decisions for you in the future if you're no longer able to make these decisions for yourself. Remember that the durable power of attorney for healthcare can be activated not only when a patient is permanently unable to make decisions for themselves, but also at times when they are temporarily unable to make decisions for themselves. It's really important to select a healthcare power of attorney. And it's also very important to select one who understands your wishes and is willing to uphold those, even if there's personal bias involved. This is why it's so important to also have a living will document because it is the patient speaking on their own behalf and takes precedence over the healthcare power of attorney. Remember also that the healthcare power of attorney is a living document and can be revoked 
or nullified by the patient at any time should they choose. As we previously noted, the living will is a very important advanced directive to have. This is the patient speaking on their own behalf and instructing healthcare professionals as to what types of treatments they would like or not like to have should they be deemed terminal and unable to make those decisions. Now, as we look at these in summary, there are a few important limitations to note for the healthcare power of attorney or the durable power of attorney for healthcare, as it's sometimes called. These five limitations restrict what the healthcare power of attorney can do as they are making decisions on behalf of the patient. The five limitations are first, the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. Secondly, the withdrawal of comfort care. Third, the withdrawal of life-sustaining measures in pregnancy. Fourth, the withdrawal of previously obtained consent by the patient. And fifth, the withdrawal of nutrition or hydration. In that event, two physicians must determine that the patient has a terminal condition or is permanently unconscious and that the patient will not gain any comfort or pain alleviation from the nutrition or hydration. In some states, there are different designations of do not resuscitate orders. We all know what it means to be a full code. This is a patient who desires full medical care, both before and after cardiac arrest. The do not resuscitate order can really take two forms. One, a comfort care arrest, where a patient desires full medical care prior to cardiac arrest, but comfort care at the time of and after cardiac arrest. The other type of DNR is DNR comfort care only, which really starts to place limitations on medical care both before and after the cardiac arrest. And this is typically utilized when patients are really wanting a comfort care approach, often desiring less in the way of diagnostic testing, hospital transportation, medications, etc. So what is the benefit of CPR, especially in a population that's very aged and medically complex like the long-term care post-acute care population? Well, in general, if you ask the lay public how often they believe that resuscitation is successful after CPR, they would say about 85%. There have been studies done that have actually looked at television shows and have found that 67%, essentially two-thirds of the time that CPR is done on television, it is successful. What we find in the overall statistics is that it is helpful in about 30% of cases, but in those who are elderly or chronically ill, it's a 0-5% to success rate for CPR. There is not much in the way of research data with regard to CPR survival rates in the nursing home setting. There was one study done several years back that showed that two patients out of 100 who had received CPR were resuscitated. One returned to the nursing home in a coma and died 15 days later. One remained in a persistently non-cognitive state and died several months later. So the outcomes were not good. There is a hospital study that was done that's very interesting. It showed that no patients receiving CPR after suffering an unwitnessed nighttime arrest survived to be discharged from the hospital. This is important because it relates to the long-term care post-acute care environment where we don't typically have cardiac monitoring. Many of the cardiac arrests that we have uh, do occur in an unwitnessed fashion, often at nighttime. So when added to the fact that our patients are very complex clinically and have significant late-stage comorbidity, 
I think that the opportunity for CPR to be effective is very, very remote. Let's turn our attention briefly to tube feeding. As you may or may not know, tube feeding was developed initially to help with those patients who had maybe had facial, head, or neck trauma, where otherwise they were very healthy, but were in need of some kind of a solution to help them maintain adequate nutrition and hydration until they were able to regain that lost ability to swallow. That technology was then applied to patients who had strokes and had lost the ability to swallow with the hope that they would regain that function again and in the meantime could provide adequate nutrition. Eventually, it became a solution for patients who just were not taking in enough caloric intake to maintain health, specifically in dementia. And this is where it's become very controversial as patients lose their appetite or lose the desire or will to eat. What should we do with them? And many times families have a difficult decision on their hands and choose tube feeding because of the perception that being hungry would be a very uncomfortable and painful way to die. So from a caregiver or family standpoint, there are several reasons for why tube feeds are selected. One is to alleviate some of the concern around this discomfort issue and also to alleviate guilt on the part of the the family or caregiver. Secondly, they may believe that tube feeds prolong life, and that has really not been shown in the data. Third, they believe that the quality of the patient's life will be improved by tube feeds. And lastly, there's a fear that their loved one is starving and in pain. And so this all drives behavior toward tube feedings, and we've been all too accepting of that in the healthcare community and probably put a lot of tube feeds in patients who really didn't benefit from them. There have been many articles over the years that have addressed this issue, one uh, from Caring for the Ages, the AMDA publication titled Tube Feeding Offers No Benefit for Critically Ill Long-Term Care Patients. As we look at the data or the facts around tube feeding, there are four points I'd like to make. First, does tube feeding prevent aspiration? The answer is no. In fact, aspiration pneumonia rates are higher typically in patients who have tube feeds and who are demented. It's about 58% risk versus 17% risk without the tube. Secondly, does tube feeding prolong life or increase survival? The answer is no, at least in patients with late-stage dementia. That has not been the case in the literature. Third, does tube feeding improve quality of life? That one's tough because oftentimes these patients are cognitively impaired and can really not give us a good history. But the answer is probably not, considering that there tends to be more nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, pneumonia, restraints, and also the procedural and post-procedural discomfort of putting the tube in, and then the tube maintenance issues that come up along the way. So it's arguable if quality of life actually is improved. Probably not. Fourthly, do dying patients experience hunger or pain at the end of life? And there have been some observational studies that have shown that most dying patients do not experience hunger. They are satisfied with very small amounts of food or liquid, and they do not suffer uh, at that time. And again, this is difficult uh, for us to watch our loved ones who may be having uh, difficulty taking in adequate nutrition or hydration. And so tube feeding will always be a controversial thing. 
And just to wrap this up, there was a very interesting article way back in 1992 published in Gerontologist that showed a rank order of the treatment preferences for patients over the age of 64. So they ranked these from the most to least preferred treatment preferences. At the top of the list, the most preferred treatment preference, should they have to have it, was antibiotics. At the bottom of the list, last, was permanent tube feeding. And so most patients, when you ask them when they're typically more healthy, they typically desire to not have artificial hydration or nutrition and do not want permanent tube feeding. So these things should be memorialized in an advanced directive so that it's easier for the family to make these decisions on behalf of the patient when the time comes. Finally, let's talk a little bit about prognosis. Prognosticating is a very difficult thing to do. It's not a perfect science by a long shot. We know that physicians, practitioners tend to overstate prognosis and overestimate survival time. This has been published uh, throughout the literature over the years. One of the things that's, I think, very helpful to do is to always get in the mindset of asking yourself the surprise question. The surprise question is, would I be surprised if my patient died in the next 12 months or the next year? If the answer is no, then you should be aggressively pursuing end-of-life care discussions with them. Be a great thing to ask as a part of your advanced care planning visit. And again, this is a question that's typically asked of the provider themselves about the patient that they're caring for. Although in the right context, you can ask the patient or their caregiver this question to try to gauge where they're at with their expectations. And sometimes they'll give you a very legitimate response and it helps to open doors for further conversation. Next, always remember to communicate prognosis in terms of short-term and long-term prognosis. As we know, short-term prognosis can be very good. If a patient has pneumonia and we're treating them with antibiotics, the prognosis for the short-term may be very good, but the long-term prognosis may be very poor based on their multiple comorbidities and late-stage conditions. So what are some predictors for one-year mortality in nursing home patients? Well, here are a few. A decline in serum albumin by one gram per deciliter in one year. New agitation, especially in patients without dementia. Decubitus ulcers. Decline in functional status, two or more ADLs being lost in a year. Age over 88 years old. Weight loss or low BMI. Swallowing dysfunction. Being of male gender. And finally, congestive heart failure. There is also data that shows prediction of six-month mortality in nursing home patients with dementia. These would include things like being stage 7 on the FAST scale, the loss of ability to ambulate, a hip fracture, pneumonia, cancer, CHF, age over 83, being of male gender, and having ADL dependence. Again, these are all six-month mortality predictors in nursing home patients with dementia. In future podcast episodes, we'll dig deeper into end-of-life issues and specifically talk a little bit about advanced illness management. But for now, I want to leave you with a quote from an RN named David Kessler, who said, We are all dying, and yet as healthcare professionals, we tend to regard dying as a failure. And I think this is very true. It's getting better, I hope, over recent years, but I hope that within our practice, we wouldn't think of dying as a failure, that we would look 
at caring for patients at end of life as a unique opportunity, although challenging, but as an honor and a privilege. You know, we've done a great job in medicine over the last hundred years to keep people alive longer, great medications, great diagnostic modalities and treatments, but we've often forgotten about people at their most critical time of need. So my hope in discussing this topic is that it would just encourage you to continue to provide good care for the patients you serve at the end of life. And with that, we will see you at the next episode.